Welcome to Occult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire at occultofpersonality.net. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky, and your co-host is Rudolf Berger. This is episode number 191, featuring an interview with author and magician Jason Louvre. Occult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to chamberofreflection.com, our membership site. Occult of Personality podcast is also sponsored by Miskatonic Books, an online store that focuses on the esoteric, occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, witchcraft, the Golden Dawn, as well as dark fantasy, classic horror, and supernatural fiction. They carry books by all your favorite esoteric publishers as well. Just visit MiskatonicBooks.com. Author, futurist, and self-described wizard Jason Louv joins us in podcast episode 191 to discuss his recent book, John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. John D. was Queen Elizabeth I's court advisor and astrologer, and the foremost scientific genius of the 16th century. But as Jason Louv explains, D. was suppressed from mainstream history because he spent the second half of his career developing a method for contacting angels. Piecing together Dee's fragmentary spirit diaries and scrying sessions, the author examines Enochian in precise detail and explains how the angels used Dee and Kelly as agents to establish a new world order that they hoped would eventually dominate the entire globe. Presenting a comprehensive overview of Dee's life and work, Louvre examines his scientific achievements, intelligence and spy work, imperial strategizing, and Enochian magic, establishing a psycho-history of John Dee as a singular force and fundamental driver of Western history. Exploring Dee's influence on Sir Francis Bacon, the development of modern science, 17th century Rosicrucianism, the 19th century occult revival, and 20th century occultists such as Jack Parsons, Alistair Crowley, and Anton LaVey, Louvre shows how John Dee continues to impact science and the occult to this day. As I told Jason during the interview, his book quickly became my favorite on the history of John Dee and Enochian magic. Jason's work as both a scholar and practitioner allowed him to bring some extraordinary insights to light that more fully illuminate the story of Dee and Kelly, as well as the larger contextual landscape that Enochian magic played in the history of Western civilization. Louvre deserves credit for delving so deeply into this work and sharing it with us. If you're interested in this subject, Louvre's book deserves a place on your shelf. Jason Louvre is the author of eight books. For the last 20 years, Jason Louvre has dedicated himself to exploring, reporting on, and teaching some of the world's sacred traditions, especially Western magic and occultism. He currently teaches meditation and magic at his online education portal, magic.me. Jason also interviews spiritual, technological, and outsider thinkers weekly on the Ultra Culture with Jason Louvre podcast. You can find Jason online at jasonalouv.com. That's jasonlouv.com. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is Angel by Artemis. Jason, I want to welcome you to a Cult of Personality podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of your show. I've been enjoying it for a long time, so it's an honor to be on the show. Appreciate that. And uh, thank you. Certainly been following your work for some time, but um, it's great to talk with you today because uh, we're going to be speaking about your book, John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. And uh, I just wanted to say, I really liked this book a lot, and um, it quickly became my favorite book on the subject, which I have to say is not an easy thing. So I commend you for your work on it. Well, high praise. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I must say also it's a difficult it's a difficult subject to me as well, and uh, I really I really liked your approach. Thank you. Well, to be honest, the reason I wrote the book was I was just trying to get to grips with understanding the Anunnaki. You know, it's something I've been involved in for I guess fifteen years now, and I started to get frustrated with the trying to just get my head around the subject material. Uh, because what I realized is, although there's been so much phenomenal writing about D, for the most part, it's fallen into two camps. There's either the academic writers and the biographers who talk about D's scientific and political achievements, but they won't touch magic with a 10-foot pole because they, you know, they have their own reputations to worry about, academic positions and things like that. And then on the other hand, there's the occult writing about D, which looks just at Enochian and just at the magical system. And both of these camps have written uh, tremendous and excellent books. Yet, for the most part, outside of a couple, um, outside of a couple of exceptions like Nicholas Cluley and Deborah Harkness, nobody has tried to put those two sides together and write the comprehensive, definitive book about D. And from my way of thinking, and I'm sure the your way of thinking and the, the way of thinking of the listeners. You can't really understand the whole story without putting it all together. You know, when you look at modern academics who don't want to talk about magic, well, you know, magic was a huge part of not only Dee's life, but of life during this time period. So we're just not getting an accurate picture if you don't assess the magic and vice versa. If you just look at the magic and take it out of context, you miss the point of why that existed in the first place. Definitely. And I think you're touching a point there, Jason, that is true, of course, for John Dee, but of course, for quite a few fields in, in the Western esoteric tradition, that uh, the serious and academic research and the ones who, who know more about the, the subject in practice are often not speaking the same voice by the same voice. That's right. And I, I think that that's changing, though. Obviously, the internet has allowed people just a, you know, phenomenally better access to information than even 10 and certainly 20 years ago, and leveled the playing field, especially with easier access to academic material with things like JSTOR. Um, but also, magic has begun to be a bit more accepted by certainly academics and also the art world. So that really, really helps with getting just better quality information. And I think that's that's really, really exciting. Yeah, I agree. And it's I think the conversation between these two worlds is occurring. There's certainly people with feet in either one. And um I think it was really interesting reading through the book with your approach sort of as observer and participant at the same time, um, really walking kind of a fine line, I thought. Um, and it was really interesting to me to see the way that you did that, um, especially uh, in the conclusion to the book, uh, the final chapter, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, though, is why John D? What about this subject? Um, was it really your connection with practicing Enochian magic that, that really you found compelling enough to write the book? Yeah, that was definitely a big part of it. You know, having spent now 20 years going through every single esoteric system that I could get my hands on, um, you know, Enochian has always stuck out to me as, you know, my, my experiences doing Enochian magic were certainly among the most profound and 
rattling and at times disturbing of all of the magical systems I've explored. And it was one of the few that I could really step back and say, there's no doubt in my mind that that's something real, that I plugged into something hyper real, you know, more real than reality in a way where sometimes with other magical systems, there's always a sense of, okay, this kind of feels like a, a psychological scaffolding. It's a way to kind of trick myself into getting my out of my own way, or it's a, you know, something that I can think my way into that gets me into interesting states of consciousness, but there really isn't too much of a sense that there's something outside of my own head. Whereas with a Nokian, it was like sticking a fork into a wall socket and getting the top of my head blown off and not put mm. back. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, so that was a big part of it, but also, you know, my, although I've spent, you know, so much time immersed in the Eastern traditions, particularly, particularly the, uh, Noth lineages of, of Hindu Tantra and, and to some extent, uh, esoteric Buddhism, um, I have continually gravitated back towards the Western esoteric tradition just because it's my own culture. And because I think that on one hand, the Western esoteric tradition is in my opinion, one of the most profound and also precise spiritual systems in the world where it allows a language for precision that other spiritual systems just don't. So for instance, by way of uh, elucidating that, you know, when you get into the Eastern systems, there tends to be one overarching goal of just enlightenment, you know, just meditate until you have this kind of undefined enlightenment experience. And there's some phenomenal techniques in there like Raja Yoga, Vipassana, things like that. With the Western system, when you look at things like Kabbalah, well, then you get like this finely tuned computer code approach where, you know, it's just like, well, I just want to experience the sphere of Netzach in the world of Bria, you know, and just one particular spirit or intelligence in there. And Enochian gets even more finely tuned. So that for me, the level of precision, you know, particularly as a guy who is into you know, computers and code and technology and things like that, and just likes the idea of precision. Um, I, I think that's something unique to the Western tradition that you don't really see in other ones. Um, and just as, you know, uh, as somebody who has this huge background in Western magic, it's been a great, I would say, it's been of great importance to me almost as a moral imperative to resurrect the Western esoteric tradition and present it in a form that makes sense and is applicable to modern people and that is sourced in our world as we understand it today. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a Western esoteric practitioner and having been in for a couple of decades, it's like, well, at a certain point it comes to, well, you know, you get to a point where you have to re-express it through your own language, having passed through it for so long. So that said, looking at the Western esoteric tradition, it really became clear to me that D, and and not just D, but specifically Enochian or angelic magic, really is the source code of the entire thing, if you if you will, in the sense that D and Kelly channeled it. It then became the core of the Golden Dawn, although they misinterpreted it to some extent. Uh, it then became the core of Thelema through Vision and the Voice. And you even see it popping up here and there and things, you know, in, in kind of weird subcultural artifacts like, um, you know, the Church of Satan and Temple of Set and, and, and uh, you know, things like that. So it and then also, of course, the connection to, you might argue, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism and just looking at the history, it's just like every single you know, Western lineage, every single iteration of the Western esoteric tradition is, is, is almost like a, a pearl that has been formed around the, the inner irritant of the Enochian system. Um, so for me, you know, when we look at the Western esoteric tradition, there's so many different branches, there's so many different things to learn. There's so many, frankly, personalities to get to grips with and kind of move past. Um, you know, Crowley, of course, is the most obvious example of somebody who, uh, you know, did a, a phenomenal job of transmitting information and updating the tradition, but then, you know, really muddied, muddied up the water with their own personal story. So uh, for me, you know, if, when we get to the core of the tradition, I think the core is Enochian. And I realized the story hadn't been fully told. And, and D is kind of this guy that people are aware of, like, oh, he's connected to Enochian. But 
the story hadn't been told. And for me, it seemed like in rebooting the Western tradition, uh, we, I needed, you know, we needed, I needed to plug straight back into D as a clean source of transmission rather than Crowley or, you know, getting tangled up in, you know, looking at the Goetia or something like that. Yeah, this is an interesting point, I think, because there's several things you said here, which I think deserve to be highlighted. Um, one is that you're looking at uh, Enochian and D through the lens of someone who is very familiar with the works of Aleister Crowley and Thelema. So there's a certain uh, view that you have when you are looking at this material through that lens, I think, because as you said, uh, Enochian influenced it so heavily. Uh, and I think there's also the, this, uh, this notion of time that I, and I think you address this pretty well in the book of, uh, of sort of approaching this as a, as something beyond time and space in that it can affect things, not just the, which come historically after, but maybe in other ways as well, which I think kind of might address the notion about Enochian being at the core of the tradition, because essentially the idea is it does go back to the fallen angels. Is that right? Um, all of that is correct up to the final or the final statement, and this is a really important point to make, um, that is an easy, an easy, un unfortunately, we've been left with, with some of the language from the 18th century. So um, the Enochian system, so Enochian was not a word used by D or Kelly. Uh, they never, they never, never referred to anything called Enochian. They just referred to it as angelic magic, the angelic language, and at, at one point, the Adamic or Adamical language. Um, meaning, you know, prior to the fall. Um, the uh, conceit of Enochian magic was something that was put on Enochian by 18th century occult writers who were looking at it and were kind of using the phrase Enochian as a blanket term, meaning antediluvian or before the fall or just really old magic. Um, and this mm -hmm. is incredibly unhelpful because, of course, the immediate uh, assumption that people make is that now Enochian must have something to do with the Book of Enoch. Uh, you know, the apocryphal Enoch 1, Enoch 2, uh, the books, the apocryphal books of the Bible that relate to the the watchers and the fallen angels. And these in, in, in themselves are profoundly beautiful, Gnostic, almost Gnostic texts about fallen angels and intermediate angels and things like this that are of profound interest to occult people. But it doesn't have anything to do with Enochian. The only real tangential connection is that the Archangel Uriel appears in the angelic sessions and Uriel is mentioned in Enoch and not in the canonical Bible. Uh, but beyond that, there's no connection. And, and this has misled people for a couple centuries. And that's something that I've hoped to correct with the book. Um, because then, of course, okay. people assume, oh, well, and then the next logical leap is, well, the angels that Dean Kelly contacted must have been fallen angels. But they well, they weren't at all. They were not the angels from the Book of Enoch outside of perhaps Uriel, although Uriel is also worshipped in the Anglican Church and I think parts of Orthodoxy and things like this. So it's not exclusively in that book. But um, the uh, the angels that Dean Kelly contacted are pretty straight down the line you know, Old Testament angels, <laughs> or or specifically angels as mentioned in, in the book of Revelation, they seem to, to some degree, conform to the schema of angelology proposed by Pseudo Dionysus and, um, and uh, you know, later, you know, looked at by Thomas Aquinas and things like that, although it's not quite so cut and dry. Uh, and certainly they have angel, uh, they have, their names are in the angelic language and not for the most part, outside of the archangels, and 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 it's hard to do a quick mapping to traditional schemes of angelology. But they're pretty much, I would say, I would say the best way to think about the angels contacted in those sessions is they're pretty much the angels in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're just a little bit in in HD. You know what I mean? Like they're closer up, focused. They're they're being interacted with on their own terms, so they're being interacted with 
using angelic words in language and they're they're appearing in intense forms so instead of just hallmark card rosy cheeked angels you know we're talking about you know giants with heads for sons and legs of pillars of brass and and uh you know scantily clad female angels and and um you know at one point they see god and god is not a old man up in the sky with a white beard god is a gigantic whale covered with eyes from head to toe and 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 they go into the mouth of the whale or swallowed by the mouth of the whale in a vision and you know the 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 from the mouth of the whale they say there's a a howling emerges that is like the uh, or or a roaring that is like the roaring of a cave of lions they go through you know layer after layer either after either as reality is stripped back and they enter the center of god so that's you know <laughs> that's the kind of thing it's not quite so much the hallmark card version but it's the same stuff in the bible it's just in hd and it's you know it's it's just being interacted i would say being interacted with in a way that you know, is, is a little bit more up close, less sentimentalized, less, um, you know, it's like a DMT trip instead of a Hallmark, a Hallmark card. <laughs> I like the HD, the HD version. <laughs> I like that, that, that comparison. Um, you were mentioning Crowley and, and, uh, the, the Golden Dawn and others, uh, in what way to you D and Kelly distinguish themselves from from the later the later rediscoverers let it put it that way of angelic language do they have in your point of view the same role as a catalyst at of their time and what was special about that if that were the case or is their role much much larger in your view is it is it something they brought in or is it something they brought back in their time how, how yeah, would you define that good question I, I think maybe the actually the best way to start talking about this is maybe just to describe a little bit about my 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 working method in doing the book so when i got the contract to do the book i had already been engaged in um Enochian magic for you know since the mid 2000s i'd started off doing going through the aethers and then i'd built the entire Enochian setup you know the entire table of practice and all that and then spent you know several more years working through the some of the more traditional forms and going through some of the watchtowers and things like that um, but when I got the contract for the book the first thing that I did was I drove to Berkeley and locked myself in a room for about a month and all that I did for that entire month was work on the vision and the voice and the, the Crowley document which is uh, in my perspective probably the most profound and haunting uh, document certainly that Crowley ever wrote you know, much more interesting than the book of the law and also in my opinion one of the most profound texts of world spiritual literature uh, whatever one thinks of Crowley you know it's hard to read that and not be just utterly floored by the level of of you know profundity and insight in that in those records um uh, so all I did for a month was go through the vision and the voice, which I'd long been a fan of, but I went through and just, you know, doing gamatria and looking at every single statement and looking up and footnoting and following up on every single, you know, that book is a hypertext to the entire history of world religion. There's not just the golden dawn and Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism in there. And then of course the the book of the law, but also Islam, the history of Christianity, the history of um, the Med Mediterranean mystery cults, the, uh, and on and on and on and on. There's Tibetan Buddhist stuff in there if you know how to look. Although I'm not sure Crowley even picked up on some of it. You can see apocalypse. You can see imagery from the Tibetan Kala, Kala Chakra in that book. Although Crowley doesn't doesn't directly point it out. There's so much in there. It's like the vision and the voice for me. You know, particularly as coming up as a chaos magician, or you know, I think chaos magician is a bit of a mis misnomer now, but just somebody who's investigated so many spiritual traditions, and you know, as we all know, if you investigate a lot of different spiritual traditions, it can be a little crazy making because you're trying to c c coordinate so many different maps of reality. And for me, the vision and the voice is almost the master key. It puts it all together. 
and then destroys it. And I, what, what can I say about that book? So, um, so yeah, about a month just following up on every single thing and doing the gematria, Hebrew, Latin, Greek gematria, and and uh, you know picking through that thing with a fine toothed comb. Um, and then until I I really really felt like I knew that thing inside and out. And then I came back to LA and then I spent the next probably year going through the D diaries. And then of course the, and doing the same thing with the D diaries. Uh, and also, you know, I just reading every single academic thing that had ever been written about D and matching things up and corroborating. And, and by the way, the book that came out, you know, there's about a thousand, a thousand words were cut out of it. Just to narrow the books already, um, 140,000 words. The original manuscript was a quarter of a million words. And there were, there was a lot more than that in just, you know, like mad gematria scribble and things like that. So, um, what I, I know the reason I mentioned this, what I gleaned from that is I had a really interesting working method where I started with the golden Dawn and Crowley, and then I worked backward to D. And then once I tracked it back to D, because I think that a lot of the work of the golden Dawn and Crowley elucidates D's work. Then I went back to Crowley and looked at Crowley and the Golden Dawn from D. And what I was able to do from that was, I think, piece together the whole story. And I think the thing that you have to look, the thing that holds it all together is that when I did that, the thing that I, the conclusion that I came to is the thing that it holds it all together is the Enochian experience is about initiation into Bina right? Or the sphere of Saturn. Saturn, of course, being the sphere in the Kabbalah, which is in the supernals. It's past the abyss. It's related to time, the passage of time, and therefore sorrow and constriction, like the Gustav Holst track in the planet Saturn, the bringer of old age. Saturn is the planet of time. And of course, so it's related to Kali. And then of course, to Babylon, Babylon being the Western equivalent of Kali, or, or in some sense, analogous. And, uh, although we don't want to be, we want to be more precise than that, but, um, since time passes constantly and time, time is in the constant business of taking things from us and changing things. And, uh, of course, adding things, you know, time, nobody, nobody, uh, beats time, you know, time takes everything. So time is often personified as a dark goddess. So of course, Kali, or in the case of Enochian, Babylon. Babylon is the center of the whole thing, uh, as the daughter of fortitude in D.M. Kelly's sessions, and then, of course, as Babylon in, in The Vision and the Voice and, and Thelema. And, and for me, Babylon is the central figure of the whole damn Western, Western esoteric tradition. Um, but, you know, it's this personification of the thing that nobody can escape, you know, time, the disintegration of time. And so the whole thing about Enochian is that it's about initiation into those mysteries. So the point of initiation into Bina is it's the, of course, you know, there's all this thelemic language around it, like crossing the abyss and the city of pyramids and all that. But what does that actually mean? Well, it means a lot of stuff, but one of the, one of the, one of the handholds you can use to think about that is it's about disintegration, you know, um, the, um, the ego, the surrender of the ego, it's like the ego, the personality, the individual adept will be eaten up by time, will be eaten up by Saturn, by Bina. So um, the whole point of the initiation into Bina is understanding that and and surrendering the, the individual personality of the adept. And that's the whole point. It can't be done right away. You have to, you know, the early initiatory career, you have to spend a lot of time building up and going through the lower grades. But um, and, and also I don't like to be linear, linear about these things. I kind of feel like the, the, all of these things are operating all the time. All of the spheres are operating all the time, but, uh, dealing with Saturn, dealing with Bina is a, about surrendering the outer personality, the shell, uh, the cliff off uh, to some extent of, of the individual. And, uh, so uh, what that means practically is Enochian is disturbing because the whole point of the Enochian experience is the eradication of the personality. And in doing that, the, the individual magician dies, all the illusions, the ego of the, uh, the delusions, the, the delusions of grandeur, the fantasies of power, the 
bizarre fever dreams of having magic power. The all of this stuff is seen as Maya, particularly magic. Magic is the ultimate Maya. It's the ape of Thoth, right? The, the delusion that one can get magical powers and somehow become more than human. I mean, this is the ultimate delusion. This is the ultimate way to buy into the trap of Maya. It's the ultimate spiritual materialism. So all of that has to go and all of it is eradicated brutally at times in the, in the Aethers or in the Enochian experience. And this is why, you know, Babylon is seen as very wrathful and girt with a sword. And when we look at Kali, it's very similar. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just the idea that you can even do magic or you can be a magician is kind of revealed as the ultimate obscenity. And that, that's, you see that in the vision and the voice. You also see that in Dean Kelly's diaries. At one point, the angels tell them that, uh, you know, magic is, you know, people doing magic is like a gross parody of the actions of God that are happening anyways. It's like, uh, it's like an obscene dance by a monkey or the ape of Thoth. So all of that has to go. And uh, what's left is something that is transpersonal, transhuman and transrational, but um, you know, without any type of mooring in what we might consider a, a concretized personality, although that can be rebuilt later. And Crowley talks about this a lot in his talking about his life after the vision doing the, the Aethers in Algeria. And uh, the interesting thing for me is that Crow, like D and Kelly kind of got up to the edge of that experience, but then freaked out. At least that's what we get from the records where they, they by the end of the sessions, they've transmitted the, the language, they've transmitted the calls, they've transmitted the furniture, and then Babylon shows up and it's too much for them and they stop their work, working relationship. And then I think that uh, Crowley and the, the Golden Dawn, but particularly Crowley, pick up that thread and push it further. Uh, unfortunately, with, with Crowley, uh, he mixes in, a you know, he just, well, I don't necessarily want to say unfortunately, but he approaches it with a different language. So instead of Christianity or just Christianity, he approaches it from the Thelemic uh, mythology. And that's helpful in a lot of ways. But also, you know, there's all this stuff about the Aeon of Horus thrown in and and about his specific role as the initiator of the Aeon of Horus. Um, so I don't know. That's a bit of a rambling uh, answer to your question. I think that, I honestly, I think that Dean Crowley both had profound influences and impacts on the world. And it's interesting to think about D D's working with Enochian uh, opened the British empire and Crowley's working with Enochian came at the very end of the British empire, you know, 1907 or shortly before world war one. And certainly the annunciation of the Anne of Horus, the two world wars destroying uh, the uh, the old structures. So they're, Crowley and Dee's work with the Nokian bookends the British Empire. And then a few decades later, of course, we get Jack Parsons, who arguably, and it's, it's amazing to see him getting his day in the spotlight now with the TV show and all of that. That's exciting um, and, and bizarre. I mean, I just walked out of my house a few days ago and a city bus went by with a picture of Jack Parsons on the side. So, you know, very, so we live in a weird timeline, but it's interesting to look at Parsons and looking at his work with Enochian, and perhaps, perhaps opening a completely new era, not necessarily an American era or an American empire, although you could momentarily argue that, but I think a new era of human advancement into space and space colonization, just as D opened the era of um, uh, colonization of the new world and exploration using naval power and turning England into a naval power. You can look at Par uh, Parsons doing the same thing for space. And for me, just looking at the entire field of the occult, it's just like, oh my God, you know, it's like what, what comes close to that in the entire literature of the occult in terms of influence on history and raw power and, 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 profundity so that's why i became so fascinated with it all right thank you it's wonderful <clears throat> i really like how you described that uh bina saturn those correspondences and the destruction involved it was really well, well think of just not to interrupt uh, but but just as a, a final point that i know you'll appreciate um, you know, it, it's as simple as thinking about what, you know, the 30 Aethers, it's this, the passage through the 30 Aethers is by and large, you can argue the same as the 50 gates of Bina in, in Orthodox Kabbalah, 
or perhaps the entry through the 30, um, the 30 aeons in Valentinian Gnosticism, or to go further out on a limb, you know, the, the passage through the 49 days of the Bardo or the, um, the aerial toll houses in Orthodox Christianity, but sorry, I digress. No, no, this is perfect. Yeah. This is important for people to hear because, um, you're describing it from our perspective, right? And then once you cross the abyss, well, the perspective is totally different. <laughs> I would have to assume, as I've been told, uh, rather than, you know, constriction and, you know, space and time, it might, it, excuse me, could be uh, interpreted more as like the basic space of all phenomena in this way that like Longchenpa may yeah. have expressed it. Well, it's, it, see, the whole, the whole Thelemic language about crossing the abyss is really tricky because, of course, you know, especially, you know, younger people, younger dudes look at that and they say, oh, well, all I have to do is cross the abyss and then I'll be the most powerful magician of them all. You know? <laughs> yeah, but there won't be right, a right, right. at that point. There's no you right. anymore, so, so right, mission exactly. aborted. So you have to look at, well, let's take a step back. And if you look at, you know, just looking at, okay, yes, we can look at the tree of life as a series of, of progressive stages in one's spiritual growth or initiatory career, or even as Masonic type grades, right? But um, to, to, to take a broader view, you know, the tree of life is a map of the human soul. Right. So as you go up the tree, as you ascend the tree and go through each sphere, you're getting to grips with that part of yourself. So, for instance, when you're in Malkuth, you're dealing with the physical world. When you're in Yesod, you're dealing with, um, you know, your desires, your physical body, your life energy, um, uh, uh, sexuality, dreams, things like that. When you're dealing with Hod, you're dealing with your your intellect. When you're dealing with when you're in Netsock, you're dealing with emotions and relationships and and inter interconnection with other beings and so on and so forth. And um, but Bina, you know, uh, practically speaking, Bina is a much more uh, the supernals are much more fundamental parts of consciousness they're not related to the outer ego because they're the outer ego is, is the lower spheres they're much closer to what you were I, I think you know relating it to zogchen or or vedanta or, or things like that is very very fruitful and useful because they're, they're kind of talking about the parts of your being that are just there like presence awareness um you know even existing at all that type of thing and um so it's like, okay, so Bina or the other spheres, it's like they're, they're the core fundamental parts of your being, but they are not parts of your being, practically speaking, that contain memory or personality or language or anything that makes up the, what we consider a human being that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, and in that sense, they're, they're pretty much this in the same, I don't want to say the same, but they're pretty much in common between all beings. So when we have mystics tell us like all, all life, you know, all sentient beings are the same at the level of awareness. I mean, that's true. They're talking about the supernals, but it's not true about the lower sephirah. You know, we're all different in the lower sephirah, but at the level above the abyss, we're pretty much the same. So to, to achieve identification with Bina or things like that, I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with certainly pre-linguistic pre parts of our being and parts that are, um, you know, there's, there's no uh, conditioned personality overlaid on them. So, of course, the personality has to be at least let go of to experience it. Um, have, you, have you ever been in a K-hole, by the way? Bit of a tangent. <laughs> no, I've not. Uh, so, so I hear, I, I of course don't know personally, but um, I've heard that uh, in in the experience of the, the K-hole, you know, the, the, the too strong with ketamine dose, is you have this experience of uh, your sensory faculties are processing information, but there's nothing there putting it together. So the sensory input is there, but there's no one home, right? It's just it's just disconnected data. Uh, and of course, we might relate that to Doth, but then past Doth, when you get into something like Bina, you know, just, just awareness itself disconnected from any type of uh, built up system to process sensory data into 
um, a story of a limited being, which is really what your ego is. And that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about the supernals. So, uh, I don't know. I've been kind of rambling, but hopefully that throws a little bit of a, of knocks on things. I mean, I would agree with you up to, except, uh, I would say, like, I would see, see Bina more as like appearance itself like because it's so related to malkuth where you have that relationship between the upper and the lower the two haze and to me that says that it's like the uh the like longchempa says the basic space in which all appearance all all phenomenal appearance yeah i think appears that basically and the awareness would be like, yeah, I'm hope, sorry. Yeah, no, you're absolutely on, right. I think, um, uh, uh, being, yes, I think that's a great way to define being and Hokma, Hokma being just awareness, right? And then Kether being, I don't know, just the fact of existing at all, perhaps. Um, but um, Kether's hard to talk about. But no, you're, you're absolutely you're right. You're yeah, absolutely right. Right, and that and that kind of matches up with my experience of it. But I think that Bina, right? You talk about it as the space holding all potential phenomenon. I mean, well, Babylon, right? Why is Babylon a whore? Right, because it holds all phenomena exactly. yes. indiscriminately, mm-hmm. and and then and uh, you know, same with Nuit or something like that. Although Crowley relates Nuit to the Ein Sof, I think. Yes. So, but yeah, you, that's a really brilliant way to describe it. So, thank you. Fascinating to listen to you both. <laughs> really <laughs> um you just we were with with babylon at the moment and you said that kelly and d freaked out when they when she appeared now, yes could you extend a bit more on that i'm curious to hear you on that what what you think caused their freaking out why did they not push it further there was it perfect the okay, so let's get out of else highfalutin kabbalistic analysis and get into sordid sex stories this is what we really want right <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> okay <laughs> european okay. Yes. so let's back bring here. it bring it back down to back down to right here <laughs> so um yeah so the actual story is so of course d and kelly spent seven years working together on on scrying and then parted ways when Kelly threw D under the bus to go work for Rudolph the second, having decided he learned enough about alchemy from D that he he didn't know didn't need D anymore. Uh, but then, of course, got his due when he died trying to escape mm-hmm. from prison potentially. Um, so at the end of the session, it's such a bizarre story. So um, prior to the session, we have to remember that D when D and Kelly met in fifteen eighty one or fifteen eighty two. Uh, D was 50 years old. He had a high position in society. He was part of the royal court. He was not particularly well paid, but he was somewhat well regarded here and there, although the secretary Secretary of State didn't like him very much. Um, but he was he had a, a real place and standing in society. Kelly, on the other hand, was was half his age. He was 25. He was an alcoholic, had, had his ears cut off for forging coins, had been accused of summoning corpses from graveyards and and doing Goetia and all this type of stuff that we associate now with things like Goetia and Palo Mayambe and things like that. Uh, so he was from the other side of the tracks. He was, you know, considered a black magician and things like this. Um, D was uh you know married he had a large household he'd had i think at, at least uh, by the end of the sessions you know d had had something like nine children and uh, there were servants in the household at mort lake it was a, a whole household and so d kelly shows up into the situation as this real bizarre outsider with a clo- you know like a cloud of scandal around him and and d's wife did not like him Nobody really liked him, but D was fascinated with him because he had, he had such a potent psychic faculty. As time went on, the angels told Kelly to get married to somebody that he didn't like very much, um, which some later writers have speculated might have meant that they, they thought it might have meant Kelly was gay or something like that, although I'm not sure that really bears out. Um, but he, they had told him to get married against his will because they thought it would be good for him to kind of mature him and sober him up a little bit to this woman that he really didn't like and didn't get along with. So that's the background for this story. So um, when Dee and Kelly were in, uh, were on the continent, 
um, after they'd been interacting with Rudolph II and trying to get the Holy Roman Empire interested in the angelic sessions, they did a session where the angel, the Archangel Uriel showed up. And <laughs> so you have to imagine. So Kelly comes into the room and says, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, I've just had a, I've had a communication with Uriel. And Uriel told me something so shocking. It shocked me to the core of my Christian being. I just can't get to grips with how horrible this is. And Dee's like, no, tell me, what is it? What is it? And Kelly says, oh, I told him, I told him not to say more. I was so shocked. No, just tell me, tell me what he said. He says, well, he said, and, and trust me, I, I told him I didn't want to. He said, he said, I should, I should sleep with your wife. <laughs> and uh then he's like and i and, and i said no that that goes against christian virtue i i, I wouldn't do, i don't want to do this i really don't but but the angels really say that we should do that um and then so they so d of course is shocked and goes and they, they do another session and it is clarified that yes actually the angels do want them to actually swap wives um this as you might imagine is a point of major contention in the d household um and of course, and again, I told the background to that story yeah. because Kelly didn't particularly like his wife, but he did like Dee's wife, who was much younger uh, than Dee. And so the two couples kind of argue about it and go back and forth for a couple months. Of course, the, both women are shocked. They really do not want to go along with that plan. Um, and But finally, they decide they're going to go through with it and they do the wife swapping one fateful evening. Uh, Kelly has sex with Dee's wife, Jane Dee, and then Dee actually does not, this is also something that came up in the research, uh, Dee does not have sex with Kelly's wife. He just lays in bed next to her, and this may be because he's advanced in age and just can't quite get excited. Um, but uh, Dee, scra- <laughs> Stephen Skinner uh, points out, Stephen Skinner realized that Dee had written this in the diaries that he couldn't fall, couldn't go through with the act, couldn't sleep with Kelly's wife, but then scratched it out of the diaries, possibly because he was embarrassed uh, about his masculinity or something like that. Um, but fascinatingly enough, shortly after they do that, which they're all profoundly disturbed by, um, a, an apparition called the Daughter of Fortitude appears. Okay, so the Daughter of Fortitude gives this one of the most famous speeches in all of magic where she says, you know, I'm the, the horn, you know, and this, I, I can't recite it from the top of my head, but um, it's it's easily looked up and, and you, most of your listeners probably know it where she gives this speech about the, the daughter of fortitude and so on and so forth about being the whore and the holy one. And um, fascinatingly enough, so there's a couple threads to pull on there. It, the, the speech is unmistakably that of Babylon. It's a being the sacred whore and, and is, is just something like straight out of you know, more modern depictions of Babylon. And it, it's, 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 it's completely out of place in the diaries. It's, it's a very, very distinct and potent and powerful voice that does not sound like anything else they've been interacting with. And uh, a couple interesting points. So first of all, the daughter of fortitude, why is she called daughter of fortitude? Um, fortitude, strength, right? Gabura, daughter of fortitude, meaning path descending from fortitude path descending from strength. So the path between um, Hesed and Geburah, right, which is Teth, which is traditionally strength. But then, of course, in Crowley's deck later is then attributed to Babylon riding the beast. That's interesting. Also, um, the text of that speech is almost word for word the same as Thunder Perfect Mind, the Gnostic text that was dug up in the Nagamadi Codices, uh, which you know is 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 right. you know goes you know I am the mm-hmm. whore and the holy one I am a virgin and yet deflowered and 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 talks about all the resolved dualities of feminine nature essentially and being both you know the whore and the holy one so it's the same speech all, all, and literally almost word for word not only in in content but also tone that that um, text. From the, the Thunder Perfect Mind was not dug up until 1947. There was no way that Dean, to my knowledge, there is no way possible that Dean Kelly would have had access to it. Um, oddly enough, that text was only found in the desert uh, a month before the Babylon working started with uh, Hubbard and Parsons, another bizarre 
you know, it's like, so you look at stuff like that and it's it just, you know, the goosebumps happen, <laughs> you know, your hair stands on end and it's like, you can't look at that and say, okay, that's all just coincidence. Uh, they're, cl- they're clearly tapped into something that is yeah, sure. profound and eternal and beyond, you know, outside the circles of time, as they say. So, um, yeah, but but also shortly after that, a figure that is quite likely the Antichrist appears and various other pronouncements are made. But as, as you might imagine, you know, on the, you know, from the spiritual level, you can look at this and say, well, you know, maybe the angels were just trying to decondition their mortal personality. As we know, this type of thing can be fairly good at breaking the, the holds of the ego. It's for the same reason that, for instance, Crowley had Victor Neuberg sodomize him in the desert in the Vision and the Voice sessions. Crowley, of course, had been, was bisexual, but up to that point had not played the passive role. And uh, also, you know, had very fundamentally unresolved issues around his sexuality to the point where even though they they did this sex act, Crowley wouldn't even write about it in his diary, wrote about it only circuitously. Um, possibly because it was a criminal offense. Um, but he writes about that. I think that's in the 15th Aether or something like that. You know, he, he writes about that sex act of following that, of doing that in the Aether. There was nothing, you know, that, that broke the uh, individual ego of the man, Aleister Crowley. And we, we know that sex and particularly possessiveness issues around sex are really, really tightly wound into the human ego. And issues of territory and dominance and, uh, you know, uh, status, you know, so much of the, you know, the, I mean, I mean, think about it, the human ego, what, what is the human ego? I mean, the business of the human ego is to attain status, to outline territory, to say, this is me and that's not me, this is mine and that's yours, to defend things. All of that is, the point of all of that is reproduction. The point of all of that is to, you know, create a, the, at least the illusion of a functional ego that's capable of of reproducing and then raising young. You need functional ego boundaries to do that. You need functional ego boundaries to take and defend territory within which children can be raised. And so, you know, we can almost look at, I've often thought that the ego is a trick of DNA to replicate itself. So when you, when you deal with... Um, when you deal with, um, sexual deconditioning like that, you're really hitting at the root of the, the personality. And I'm not recommending this per se. I'm just looking at this historically. It's like, you can see that you can see that in Parsons life also around the parsonage and, and all of the, you know, kind of, um, um, uh, you know, swinger type stuff they were doing. And, um, it just makes sense. You know, it's like, it makes sense from the angelic perspective. It's like, they're trying to crack the the center of the human personality. But in what, what often happens with these things is, you know, what spiritual beings think human beings can handle. They often can't. And things just got real awkward after that. And Kelly and Dee just kind of drifted apart, you know, in shame, probably remember it's the 16th century. It's not, you know, 1968 San Francisco, it's, you know, 1580s central Europe. So, uh, it, it, it kind of ended their working relationship. And, uh, but fascinatingly enough, I'm sure this will be of interest to everybody. Uh, D continued to do scrying even after Kelly met his gruesome end. When, when D returned to England, he continued to do scrying sessions with a new scryer. He was put out to pasture in Manchester, became the warden of Christ Church College in Manchester. And, and uh, that was their way of kind of getting D out of the way. Uh, he'd kind of outlived his usefulness at that point. But D spent another 10 years in scrying sessions with another scryer, but then burnt all of the records when he decided that they were uh, not of good quality or, or I think that they had asked for a prediction. They asked for a prediction and the prediction did not come true. So D decided that the communications he was getting through this new scryer were not of good quality. So all of that is lost. So actually the bulk of Dee's scrying activity came after Kelly and it's just all lost to history. Kelly was not even his primary scryer, which is just it's amazing to think about. But anyways. It is fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. And mm. just as a follow-up, because uh, I want to be clear, not just between us, but for people listening, um, when you talk about sex and magic and this shattering of personality and moving beyond 
the ego or at least temporarily um these are you're describing uh activity that is while you know to think about it and speculate is like sounds superficially pleasurable but you're talking about uh essentially like experiences that result in feelings of shame degradation brokenness shatteredness well okay let me be careful about about this i think that so first of all the thing to when we're talking about this type of activity the first thing to bear in mind is this is not like oh like this is how people should do magic right it's not like oh yeah everybody do this type of sex magic that's the way to do it we're talking about very we're we're talking about the business of adepts here uh this is these are things that happen at very you know, and it tend to be one-off experiences, by the way, um, and not in some type of excuse for debauchery or to convince somebody like, oh, yeah, like, be my Scarlet Woman, do this crazy sex thing with me and we'll get enlightened. Like, no, no, no. Right. We don't, I don't want to like, you know, like say something that people exactly. like take as, yeah. oh, like, yeah, we should all be doing this. And, you know, no, no, I don't, that's not the case at all. Um, and, and again, we're talking about things that are isolated incidents for the by and large and not ongoing themes um even in parson's life you know we can look at parson's parson the same thing the same thing repeats in parson's life by the way where he wife swaps with hubbard and it goes disastrously for him so let's see so let's pick through this i think that right so first of all i don't think that shame and degradation are the point i think that disassociation is um, um disassociation from the mm-hmm. at least temporary disassociation from the rules of the human personality and and this is the whole point of you know of course this is anathema and chaos magic or taboo busting and the tantric groups in india and this type of thing um the that's i think the theory behind it but i really want to carefully differentiate that from what the effects are as you mentioned in the real world i mean an interesting way to think about this is i mean think about about all the um tantric groups that came in the 60s and 70s to the west like for instance adida or chokim trungpa or people like this who were doing kind of antinomian left-hand path tantra with western students by and large the western students could not handle that stuff at all um you know or osho or somebody like that so mm-hmm. it's totally right and i think that yeah, that's a probably better example. i think w- yeah. it is perhaps naive on the part of certainly human spiritual teachers who are at a higher level of whatever you want to call it or you know maybe disincarnate beings to just assume oh yeah like this is this is going to be great it's going to go over well because the human personality sometimes can't bear the you know can't act as a shock absorber i think you know with crowley it seems to have been gone just fine but you know crowley's crowley's a different example you know crowley's on his own wavelength there um but uh d and kelly didn't really seem to handle it particularly well um parsons i think did handle it like parsons was all about it you read read parsons life and you read his records you know it's like his idea you know he wanted all this to happen even when 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 l ron hubbard was stealing his his wife i mean he was like all into it but then you look at how his life went and it's like it's not like that had good results so I'm not sure where that leaves us. I'm, I'm hesitant to say to say one way or the other because it's such a personal thing. But I do just want to point out that it it is thematically something that's happened in in you know at least for the in the case of this book, it's something that it was a major theme in all of these working pairs that went through Enochian, whether it was D and Kelly, Crowley and Neuberg, uh, or Parsons and Cameron, or Parsons and Hubbard. Um, this was a, a, a core, it's a, it's a repeating theme in, in all of them. So it's important to, to look at at least. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you're spot on correct to make note of it. And I appreciate that. Good, good way to put it. Well, Jason, thank you again for joining us. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you about your excellent book, John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic, and the Occult Roots of the Modern World from Inner Traditions. Excellent book. 
great to speak with you about it. I'm really hoping that we will be able to do this again at some point. Um, yeah, that would be in lovely. The future. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. That was a that was a super fun conversation. It's always I've been doing a ton of interviews, but it's my favorite ones are when you know we can we can just talk about the get into the details, you know, instead of you know I just instead of just talking about what magic is and that type of thing. So yeah, so great talk. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it very much. So it's excellent. Bye. In the chamber of reflection, we continue this often provocative interview with Jason Louvre, delving even more deeply into his research on John Dee and Enochian magic. We also discuss Jason's views on the modern political landscape and magic from a modern perspective. Join us for that fascinating and important conversation. And I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com. And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks and I salute you. Thanks for listening and until next time.
Drawing in 